Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. So here's a joke. What did the pencil say to the other pencil? You're looking really sharp. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download. Culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a pointedly lame joke from Oy. dance pop star Shamir that will help break the ice, and later he'll suggest a playlist for your next party. It's way better, we promise. Yes. Plus, we speak with Peter Capaldi, star of the legendary TV series Doctor Who. He tells us what he brings to the sci-fi hero. Unpleasantness inaccessibility. The keys to success, in other words. Indeed. Other guests this hour include Paul Shear, star of the TV comedy The League, and we speak with Alexandra Pelosi about her new documentary, San Francisco 2.0. But first up, we need to pay our respects to a friend of the show. That's right. Novelist Jackie Collins passed away this week. She was the undisputed queen of the beach read. She wrote over 30 New York Times bestsellers and sold over 500 million books. And we had her on the show as often as possible to dispense etiquette advice. Yes, we kept inviting Jackie back because she bristled with energy. Mm. She had a mischievous wit and she managed to be classy even when she dished about Hollywood's elite. It's amazing. But also we plain liked her and admired her. Her prose may have been less than sparkling, but she was a very smart, very successful person who started writing sexy books at a time when women just didn't do such things. That's right. She was an avowed feminist. She was especially proud of writing about strong women like her longtime protagonist, Lucky Santangelo, the daughter of a gangster. Here's Jackie telling us about Lucky back in 2012. She's kind of such an interesting character to write about because she becomes such an amazing woman, you know, and I wanted to show how <laughs> If you she do kind say of... so yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. She's not me. She's the woman I would like to be in another life. Oh. And women write to me all the time. They go, oh, you know, I broke up with my boyfriend and then I was lying on the bathroom floor crying and... I suddenly thought, what would Lucky do? And then I got up and I went, you know what? I'm getting out in the world again. She does give women inspiration. What, what about her isn't you? You were saying that she's the woman you'd like to be. What, what do you imbue her with that you wish you had? I wish that, uh, well, I think she's the woman that every woman would like to be. She does what she wants to do. She says what she wants to say. She doesn't take crap from anybody. And uh, it is a bit like you me, do actually. All that. <laughs> I'm waiting. This yeah. is terrible. This is terrible. Yeah. Um, this, no, you, she's and you know she's she's just crazy lucky. I, I love the character. I love writing the character. Well, you know, speaking of writing lucky, yes, we've only been on the air for a couple of years, and in that time, this is your third appearance hyping a third <laughs> book. Forget just creatively, like physically, how can you write I this don't much? Know. I I think I first came on this show with Poor Little Bitch Girl, right? <laughs> yes. I, uh, no, no, I no. Think. It was the one about the uh, the oligarchs. Goddess uh, of Vengeance. The, Goddess of Vengeance. Yes. Oh, no, you mean uh, the power trip. Look, you can't even, even remember I, the titles even of your books. You're writing them so fast. I know. I write, actually, I only write a book a year, but it seems like more. But this oh. year I've done two books because Confessions of a Wild Child and then the Lucky Santangelo cookbook. I know. And it's, she makes the best wow. meatballs you've ever tasted. <laughs> It's not just cigarettes and drugs? Okay. No. Jackie Collins. She passed away this weekend at the age of 77. Uh, if there are parties in the afterlife, you can bet she's hosting them. She'll be missed. That's right. You'll find all our conversations with her at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, as I'm sure Jackie would approve of, it's time for cocktails. This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our famed history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This month, two and a half centuries ago, everyone in America became 11 days older. 
overnight. Michelle Phillippe is on vacation, so our friend Tracy Samuelson explains. 30 days, half September, but not in 1752. To understand why, you first have to go back to the late 1500s, when Pope Gregory XIII bestowed upon the world the Gregorian calendar, the calendar most of us use today. It was soon adopted by much of Western Europe. But not by Great Britain. They were staunchly Protestant, and therefore didn't appreciate a Catholic pope telling them how to mark the passing of days. So Britain, and its colonies, including America, clung stubbornly to the old Julian calendar they'd been using for centuries. Now, the two calendars are pretty different, and eventually Britain's Julian calendar was 11 days behind the Gregorian calendar its neighbors used, which caused a lot of confusion when it came to record-keeping. Think about it this way. A letter from Gregorian France, postmarked, say, October 10th, could conceivably arrive in Julian England on a date several days earlier. Finally, after holding out for 170 years, Britain and its colonies decided to give in and go Gregorian, which, among other things, meant that in 1752, they simply chopped 11 days out of the month of September. In other words, when colonial Americans went to bed on the 2nd, they woke up on the 14th. In the short term, this also caused confusion. Would interest still accrue over those missing 11 days? What if a bill was due on a date that now didn't exist? But eventually the kinks got ironed out and all was well, except for scholars of this whole period of history who still have to figure out which calendar to use when deciding on the date anything happened. So that was the history, and now for a drink to serve along with it. I'm on the line with David Ricker, bartender at the Fat Canary, a restaurant and bar in Williamsburg, Virginia. Williamsburg, of course, was subject to the calendar shift back when Williamsburg was the capital of England's Virginia colony. And of course, colonial Williamsburg remains delightfully lost in time. David, what drink did that story inspire you to make? Oh, uh, it inspired us to create this drink called the Orange and Stormy. Why that? Well, you know, there's the dark and stormy, which is dark rum, uh, ginger beer, and lime juice. Course, so we yeah. sort of took a twist on it, which is Mount Gay rum, very popular in the in the old world. And then we took uh, blood orange and a little bit of ginger liqueur. That sounds totally delicious, but is there a reason why you went with orange? Is there something with that color? The color and also the fact that, you know, rum and orange seem to go really well together. And in the trade, you know, back then they were constantly trading with different countries and, and oranges were very popular. The Spanish brought orange to the New World, oh. and uh, we thought it'd be kind of kind of tangy, zippy, and it works well in the in the heat of Virginia in the summertime. Oh yeah, that doesn't hurt, or in the <laughs> early fall, whatever we're calling this month. Right. Any special way that you mix this stuff up? Oh, uh, we just do a good pour of Mount Gay rum and the Canton ginger liqueur. So you've got two potent alcohol <laughs> components. I feel like that's appropriate. I feel like the it colonists is. probably didn't skimp on the alcohol. No, no, their life was hard, so they actually uh, consumed quite a bit of alcohol. So it's a beautiful colored drink, you know, the darker orange color, and then put it in a big tall glass with lots of ice, and you can sip it or gulp it, and if you gulp too many, then you might miss several days. I was just going to say, you could <laughs> you just, know. suddenly your year is a lot shorter. That's right. 
And Brendan, here's an interesting thing. Well into the 20th century, the country of Turkey mm-hmm. was still using the Julian calendar and mm. simultaneously also using the Islamic lunar calendar for certain things. Wow. Yeah, just it must to, make things complicated. Yeah. They didn't go fully Gregorian until 1926. That is a true well, story. With all those calendars, it was probably hard to settle on a date to switch to the new calendar. That's right. It was a vicious cycle. A terrible trap. All right, folks, you'll find the recipe for the orange and stormy on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the soundtrack in which a musician DJs your dinner party. And our guest is Shamir. His androgynous voice and killer hooks landed him a record deal just out of high school. Pitchfork calls his album, entitled Ratchet, quote, a study in the best dance pop of the past decade. He's on tour now. Here he is with some tunes to dine by. Hey, this is Shamir, and this is my dinner party soundtrack. My first song would be Party Police by Always. actually played this at a dinner party back when I was in Vegas with my friends. Very chill, very mid-tempo song, but it's also not too soft of a song to like fall asleep on your plate. <laughs> I love to cook a lot. I kind of have like a very maternal spirit about me like I just want to comfort people with food so I guess I will say what's on the menu which would definitely be lengua empanadas and lengua is tongue in Spanish so usually that throws a lot of people off and it's a lot of steps to cook but it's totally worth it For my second song, I would play Nico with the Velvet Underground, her song Chelsea Girl, a classic. Honestly, I just love Nico's voice. I just love how deep it is and her accent. If I didn't have my own voice, I'd probably want hers. Here's room 546. It's enough to make you sick. It's all wrapped up in foil. You wonder if my favorite part of the song, which is funny because it's the part that I read that she hated, was the flute. I think the flute is so beautiful in that song. Even the way the string arrangement is very staccato and like you're creeping. It's a very haunting song and um, kind of sounds like. The soundtrack to a dinner party at the Adams family's house. For my third song, I would pick You and I by Wilco and Feist. You and I We might be strangers However close we get sometimes I was working at Ross Department Stores in the fitting room, so there's a lot of standing around just like listening to whatever they played over the intercom, and um, that song was definitely on heavy rotation on the playlist.
actually remember this one time. This one lady was in the fitting room for such a long time and I almost forgot that she was in there. So I was singing my butt off, but um, eventually she came out and I was like, oh my God. She's like, you have a beautiful voice. <laughs> I was like, thank you. <laughs> My fourth song would definitely be Demon off my album Ratchet. The honor roll was all I know till you took me over to the dark side. I, know, I guess I wanted to kind of like make my voice sound a little bit more eerie. It's like always so weird when I'm describing my own voice because I mean, I know it's different, but it's just the only voice I ever had, you know? I guess it just made do with what I have. <laughs> and I've gone and sold my soul. Dinner Party soundtrack from Shamir. He's on tour now. Catch him if you can. All right, we're going to take a break, but coming up, etiquette tips from Doctor Who himself, and we learn why Paul Shear, star of the hit show The League, doesn't want to hear about your fantasy football league. When the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for joining us. Yes, I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we talk with actor Peter Capaldi about his journey from being a Doctor Who fanboy to being Doctor Who. <laughs> but first, let's meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week, it's comedian Paul Shear. Yeah. He's probably best known for his role in the hit show The League, which launched its final season this month. He's also a regular on the ABC sitcom Fresh Off the Boat and on the Hulu comedy series The Hot Wives, a parody of reality shows. And if that weren't enough, he also co-hosts How Did This Get Made, a podcast dedicated to mocking terrible films. We interviewed Paul this past Sunday in front of a live audience at the Los Angeles Podcast Festival, and we kicked things off by playing them a clip from The League. Sheer plays Andre Nozick, a rich plastic surgeon who's always the butt of his friend's jokes. In this scene, he has them over for their annual fantasy football draft. Gentlemen, take a look around because this is how a single man in the city lives. A man with a 65-inch LED TV with DirecTV, NFL Sunday ticket, and super fan package. Woo! <laughs> yes, it's college football right now, but next week it will be NFL, and it will be pure fantasy football nirvana. <laughs> Tiffany, drinks! You Ladies, hired please. bartenders? There you go, gentlemen. Nice. How you doing? All right. <laughs> I figured, you know, we play, can we just wait for a second? Mm -hmm. I figured, you know, we play fantasy football, but let's live a fantasy life. Gentlemen, to, can we just, I'm just going to make a little toast. This year, I'd like to make a toast to you guys, to my friends. And to, can we just, can you guys hold on with your drinks for a second, please? Can we please wait? I'm making a toast, guys. Sorry. Just two, guys, guys, two guys, guys, good guys. friends. Sure. And I... No, cheers. don't cheer. I didn't. All right. Didn't say I didn't. Please, please. We're not drinking. Look, I'm just. I know, this. but just let me. Just let me say my thing. To my friends. To my dear friends. Cheers. I, cheers. No, 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 Come on. Come on. Yes. That um, that is one of my favorite things. We're we're in our final season right now. That 
was our first ever episode that we shot. That was one of the moments I knew that the show would be really fun to do because the show is not fully scripted. It's yeah. improvised. Yeah. So that whole cheers toast thing was not in the script. And we found that in the moment. And I was like, oh, this show is going to be really fun. It's like, so yeah. good. It was basically, that was just that. an ad for me to do Direct TV because Direct TV was a sponsor. And I had to say, 60-inch <laughs> TV with Direct TV. And, uh, and then we found... Are you serious? That, yeah, I had to wow. say, 60-inch TV with Red Zone or something. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, we love uh, living in Chicago and eating Pizza Hut. <laughs> <laughs> I never understood that. We were always yeah. like, get the Pizza Hut in here. Like, yes. Guys, we're in the, the pizza capital of the world. <laughs> so you're saying that a lot of the shows improv, it's a pretty filthy show. Oh, yeah, it's disgustingly filthy, yeah. And does that come from the improv or from the writer's room? It actually comes from the writer's room for the most part. The initial ideas, um, Jeff Schaefer and Jackie Schaefer created the show. Jeff has worked on uh, Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and then a lot of the Sasha Baron Cohen stuff. So he has a great turn of phrase. Like, he created the term regifting. That was a Seinfeld term. Mm. So, like, that's kind of his mentality is finding something that people do, putting a name towards it, and then kind of getting it out. So the new one, I think the one that kind of took off the biggest in this show, is something called Eskimo Brothers. Oh, yeah. And Eskimo Brothers are two of the guys who've had sex with the same girl. <laughs> yeah. And I was very pleased as a Bachelor fan to hear it using The Bachelor a lot this season. I was like, <laughs> hey, we created that. Can I actually, I want to mention this, uh, one of the shows that we mentioned that you're on, yeah. uh, Hot Wives. Yes. It is a parody of reality TV. You're yes. on record as being a fan of these shows. I am. Um, Amy Schumer famously... A big fan of Bachelorette. Yeah, defend it to me. Like, <laughs> you guys are obviously intelligent. Why? Well, okay. Um, I, I, to me, I'm a huge Bachelor fan. I love it because I don't know. There, uh, like, there's something so amazing about these people being held captive, <laughs> and, and and then been given one of the opposite sex. So that person becomes amazing, even if they're not. Like two seasons ago, this guy Juan Pablo was like still living at home with his parents. And he would walk into the room and the women would be like, oh, he's the love of my life. I love them all. And you know, they, they don't, they're not allowed any other contact, no social media, no phones. So they, I, yeah. I think it's interesting from a sociological point of view. These people are subjecting themselves to it. It wasn't like, you know, a van pulled up and someone like pulled some out of their law firm and like, go, go do this. That is true. Although, if, have you seen the TV show Unreal that sort yes. of, for those who don't know, it's behind the scenes, a fake behind the scenes at a reality TV show. Yeah. And it was produced by a woman who actually worked in that world. Which and she was, I believe, on your show, right? Yes, she was. And, and I, I felt like when you asked her, like, oh, is, is this based on anything? She was like, no. No, and I was not like, at yes, all. it was, 100%. Yeah. She's like, no, because I'm going to get sued. Yes. I remember in my car. Going, she's lying. She is. <laughs> Every one of these things happen. Yeah. But my point being, like, yeah. her, something that she said is that people go on those shows thinking they can beat the system. Oh, yeah. And they can. can't beat the system. Well, because here's the thing if I interview you for three hours and you say one thing wrong, yes. and then that's the only part that I show, they win. The house yeah. always yeah. wins. Yeah. Even there's a contestant on last season who just wore a short bikini, but they just put a black box over her wherever she went so you just thought that her Whoa. junk was hanging out and then you just lower your expectation of this person it's like she just was wearing a bikini her junk wasn't out but they make they've now created the myth her junk is out junk and is how does out. lady junk even get out lady junk yeah that's another, podcast. That's another catchphrase hey let's talk Do about it. your podcast for a moment mm -hmm. where yes. you talk about bad movies yes what is one of the craziest plots you've encountered? I, what I'm obsessed with is movies that try to be everything to everyone. Like yeah. Super Mario Brothers, 
Masters of the Universe, the He-Man movie. Um, because what it is is some person who does not understand the property going, hey, kids like this, we'll make it. But let's leave out all the stuff that they like and we'll make it this way. Like, He-Man is a movie... I mean, I'm not well-versed in He-Man, but it's about, you know, it takes place in a different world and there's a skeleton man and there's a strong man and they fight and there's magic. And they, and they for the movie, they go, forget all that. We'll make it about two kids in love. Courtney Cox is one of them. And He-Man just kind of pops in because a transistor fell out of the sky. So it's like, He-Man's in the middle of Earth running around. Like, yeah, it yeah. makes no sense. It's like, what... They're taking away the audience, and I always go, like, there are certain signposts of a bad movie, one being an elaborate skateboarding scene. <laughs> uh, skateboarding or hoverboarding becomes a thing, and, like, you can see that in Batman and Robin, the worst of the Batman movies. You can see it in He-Man. I think Super Mario has some skateboarding. Whenever, like, yeah, yeah, kids, they love skateboarding. Get them yeah. in there. But so the the name of the podcast, how did this get made? Yeah, you've been doing this for a while. You've lived in LA for a while. Yeah, how do these get made? Well, yeah. we've teamed up with this guy Blake Harris, and Blake Harris wrote this book called Console Wars. He's a great investigative journalist, and he has been doing real how did this get made?s Of how did this get made?s Doing oral histories with like the people behind a Chuck Norris movie called Top Dog, which is a kids movie about a cop and a dog solving problems about white supremacists in San Diego. That's a and, skateboarding uh, scene? Skateboarding? Uh, there's there's right skateboarding for, uh, in it, but there's a lot of uh, terrible racism. <laughs> a, a, dog, a dog does get shot, um, which is crazy for a kids movie. Um, so that has been a really fascinating because the stories behind the actual things are way more interesting. I, they always are. It's the best intentions, and sometimes you whiff. And uh, and sometimes you whiff with $50 million and we have to talk about (laughs) it. Uh, We have questions that we ask everyone on the show that we have to get to. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? Well, I mean, I'll go with the, do you play fantasy football? Oh, yeah. Because because even if I do, which I do, it's not interesting. You don't want to hear about my team, nor do I want to hear about your team. It's really just like hearing someone talk about their dream. It's only interesting to the person who had the dream. Unless we're in a league together, then it's 25% more interesting. Did you know much about football before you started that? I actually uh, did not. I said I wouldn't audition for this show because I was like, I can't improvise about fantasy football. I don't play fantasy football. And then I got in, and now I'm in deep with fantasy football. And it's really tough because now I have a kid, and I can't watch football. Mm. So I just I thought you were going to say, I can't watch the kid. I just can't pay attention to (laughs) it. Paul Shear speaking to us live last weekend at the Los Angeles Podcast Festival. You can hear more of that interview and, in fact, the entire live show on our website. That's right. You'll hear us talk with Paul about his latest project, Crash Test, in which he drives an audience around L.A. in a bus and turns the city into a stage. <laughs> also, our interview with Aisha Tyler, star of Archer and the CBS drama Criminal Minds, and oh, there's so much more. It's all at dinnerpartydownload.org. Get it. And now, it's time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week on the show, you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is Peter Capaldi. 
He won an Oscar for directing the short film Franz Kafka's It's a Wonderful Life, but he's best known as an actor. He was in the sleeper hit film Local Hero and became a household name in the UK, playing the obscenity-spewing political spin Dr. Malcolm in the BBC series The Thick of It and in its spin-off film In the Loop. Most recently, though, Peter became the 12th actor, is it? That's right. To portray the title character in the beloved sci-fi series Doctor Who, which has run on and off since 1963. The new season just debuted on BBC America, and Peter, we're honored to have you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. That's a big resume. I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm older than I look. I have a question. Do you get stopped more for Franz Kafka or Doctor Who? Mm. You know, no one stops me for the Franz Kafka <laughs> okay. stuff. That's a shock. Speaking of Doctor Who, yeah. here's a, <laughs> Go ahead. short of Star Trek and Star Wars, this show has maybe the biggest cult following of any sci-fi franchise ever. Uh-huh. They offer you the role, and what were you thinking? It's a huge mantle. I just laughed. On. I just thought it was so funny when my agent called and said, how would you feel about being the new Doctor Who? And I couldn't stop laughing because I've always loved the show. Yeah. I and mean, I grew up with it. It started like when I was six years old. Mm. Uh, and I watched it avidly. And as a kid, I used to write to Doctor Who. And I'd get the actors, you know, would send back letters and sign photographs and stuff like that. And I even wrote, I wrote to them so much that they obviously passed the letters on to the production office. And one day this package arrived. And it was, I mean, can you imagine anyone doing this now? It was scripts. A couple of episodes from the forthcoming season. They sent to you, a young... To a kid. A yeah. kid, yeah. And I'd never seen wow. a script before in my life. I didn't even know there was a document, you know, Did, that, they, that they used yes, to generate exactly. a program. You just with. thought Doctor Who was a reality show. Well, <laughs> but it was one of the key things in making me want to be an actor and get, and get huh. involved in the business because I thought this is fabulous. Yeah, what a beautiful thing to give to a kid. What did you yeah. ever? When now that you are Doctor Who, did you ever meet up with any of those folks? I met that the man who did that. Hmm. Who sent you this script? script was a producer called Barry Letts, who's mm. now uh, unfortunately dead. But he produced the show with uh, John Pertwee and Tom Baker in it. Yes. Oh, wow. And I met his, unknowingly met his son, who's a wonderful actor called Crispin Letts. And I said to him, that name's a very, you know, that used to be a producer called Barry Letts, who produced Doctor Who. And Crispin said, that's my dad. Oh, my God. Oh my and you're like, he's and responsible I, for my career, basically. Yeah, and I got to meet him. But and I he wanted, was like, I went to jail for trademark infringement for sending me that <laughs> script. Um, but I'm glad it worked out for us. <laughs> for you. Worked for mm. Peter Capaldi. Mm. What, but I'm, I mean, this is obviously something that's hugely important in your life. There's mm. also the opportunity not just to play the doctor, but also to screw it up. I mean, were you afraid? Yeah, I mean, it's a big show now with a much bigger uh, constituent. It's a bigger product yes. than it ever was before. <laughs> When I was really, really into it, it was just this strange little show that was yours and you could get into. Now it's this sort of international thing, franchise. And that's the sort of um, trick with it, really, is not being overwhelmed Mm. by the scale of it and just maintaining a a personal and quite sort of um, intimate relationship with it, you know. What's interesting about Doctor Who is built into the idea of Doctor Who you're allowed to be different. You know, you don't have yeah. to go back and pretend you're the Doctor Who that came before because of this idea of regeneration. That's right, And yeah. each Doctor Who can be a different person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you want to bring to your version? Um, unpleasantness, basically <laughs> unpleasantness, uh, inaccessibility. That's kind um, of true, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I sort of didn't want to be trying to get the audience's approval. And it sounds odd, mm. but I thought, you know, this is an alien creature. Mm-hmm. Doctor know. Who is an alien for those who don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, and he has, you know, he's part of a, a mysterious race called the Time Lords, but he's a rebel. Yes. Time Lord. I didn't want him to be, you know, a guy. <laughs> you know, just a guy that you'd bump into yeah. and that he'd be... Tom ple- Who. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I wanted him to be, you know, uh, strange. Mm-hmm. And so people would say, oh, you know, do you have to be so unfriendly? Do you have to be so spiky? And I, yeah, yeah, I do have to. <laughs> because um, if you've lived for two and a half thousand years, as he has, cranky. you know, you realize, you know, <laughs> life is tough, business as usual, get in line. Actually, mm-hmm. I think we have a, a great clip to illustrate this. This is from uh, the first full episode that you appeared in as Doctor Who. Uh-huh. Uh, and in this scene, the doctor has just regenerated and become you. And you are extremely perplexed by the weirdness of your new eyebrows and voice. <laughs> and you've confronted a random homeless man in an alley in Victorian England and are trying to figure yourself out with him. These are attack eyebrows. You can take bottle tops off with these. They are mighty eyebrows indeed, sir. They're cross. Uh, They're crosser than the rest of my face. They're independently cross. They probably want to seed from the rest of my face and set up their own independent state of eyebrows. That's Scott. I am Scottish, am I? I've gone Scottish. Oh, yes, you are. You are definitely Scots, sir. I, I, I hear it in your voice. Oh, no, that's good. Oh, that's good. I'm Scottish. I'm Scottish. I am Scottish. I can complain about things. I can really complain about things now. Give me your coat. <laughs> he's confrontational. He's yeah. a confrontational doctor. But no, he loves, he's a great joyful character. Yes. It doesn't reduce his joy. I mean, he loves, I always think he's the kind of creature who would love seeing the sunrise over an empty car park or watching, you know, <laughs> garbage blow around in the wind. Or, and then also seeing, you know, stars being born in, in the star fields of Alpha Centauri. He can do all of that stuff. You know, it's not like Star Trek where you've got like, you know, a, a battleship in space apparatus. with yeah. all of this military backup and stuff. Yeah. It's just this guy he's just like this odd professor at university wandering wandering and and not even looking for adventure but stumbling into it so this show has been going on for decades yeah it first the day it first launched was the day kennedy was assassinated that's right yeah yeah. and then it was delayed i mean i don't know all the details of it because i'm not as i have been told quite tartly by some (laughs) uh, uber fans i'm i'm a fan of the show and not a scholar Oh, oh really? Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh! So uh, I don't because know. because you have this thing called the life. That's <laughs> yes. interesting. Well, so I have a question. So, so you're you, so you're even talking about the division between scholars and fans of the show. My my question is: This show's been going on since 1963. Yeah. Um, why should someone join it now? It seems overwhelming. Well, because every episode is episode one. Because what happens is. This guy tumbles around time and space with his beautiful and glamorous companion. Mm-hmm. And every week they show up on another planet mm-hmm. or in another time zone uh, and accidentally stumble into another adventure with some uh, megalomaniac or some evil mm. creature. And you can just turn on. You don't have to know anything about it. All right. And so. also it, what I love about it is it's a show that manages to explore profound philosophical ideas and also have guys in rubber monster suits. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is. You know, there's a kind of B-movie quality to it, mm-hmm. which I absolutely adore. Something that uh, the current showrunner, Mr. Moffat, has yeah. said about it is that it has these incredible shifts in tone. Well, that's the kind of challenge of playing it because I thought, because I grew up in the in the playground being Doctor Who and stuff, and I sort of still thought I could do that when I arrived and started filming it, uh, but realized that actually I had to put on my mature acting 
head uh, because you have to be very nimble. Sometimes it's very funny and sometimes it's uh, very sad or tragic, but it's often within the same scene. Mm-hmm. That was the shock. This is actually hard. It's not yeah, it's just actually fun. hard. It's not just fun. You can't rest with it. And also because a new writer comes along and they've always been... The thing about Doctor Who is there was like a queue of the best writers in the UK who want to write an episode. Yeah. And they, mm. they, they all can't write an episode because all they love Doctor Who, they don't necessarily know how it works. Yes. But you get this fabulous material and they all want to push the envelope and change it and stuff. So you never get into a groove where you think, I know how to do this because I don't. Tom yeah. Stoppard's Doctor Who coming well, up. He just couldn't get it. He couldn't work with <laughs> the did. monsters. You know, it was not uh, smart enough. I'm trying to think of a very clever Rosencrantz and Gilderstein, a dead gag okay. there. But that's hard at this time in the morning. Peter Capaldi, a.k.a. Doctor Who. Yes. The series just launched its latest season on BBC America, and attentive listeners may have noticed something odd about this week's etiquette segment. Yes, Peter does have an accent. We Actually, know I'm referring to the fact that he didn't actually answer any etiquette questions. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, never you fear, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Capaldi will be back after the break to help you with your problems of politesse. And after that, we will speak with director Alexandra Pelosi about her new documentary, San Francisco 2.0. When the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, documentarian Alexandra Pelosi tells us what tech bros are doing to the city by the bay. Mm. But right now, we've got some more talking to do with this week's etiquette expert, Peter Capaldi. That's right. We just spoke with him about his ongoing portrayal of Doctor Who in the venerable British TV series of the same name. The latest season of the show just launched on BBC America. And Peter, a lot of very excited Whovians have written in with etiquette questions for you. Are you ready for these? Okay. All right. First question comes from Michael in Amos, Pennsylvania. E-M-M-A-U-S. Amos. Amos. Yeah. Sounds German. Amos. Amos. Michael from Amos, Pennsylvania has a question. (laughs) Dear doctor, is it considered polite to use fancy silverware to fight against a medical foe? And if so, what is the best piece of silverware to use? A medical foe, for some reason, is yeah. specified. Well, first of all, is he addressing this question to, to me or to the doctor? Well, he says well we, doctor. we said that you were coming here, but he obviously doesn't make a distinction. You've been so successful okay. that you are no longer uh, Peter Capone. I wonder whether there's been a little spell check operated or a little uh, auto texting. Correct. Auto texting, because the question sounds to me like an echo of there's a scene in Doctor Who where the Doctor meets Robin Hood, mm. and uh, the Doctor fights him with a with a spoon. So oh, so it should be medieval, is what you're maybe it's med- so. Give maybe me the, quest- give me the say- question again. <laughs> so, dear Doctor, is it considered polite to use fancy silverware to fight against a medieval foe? And if so, what is the best piece of silverware to use? It's a spoon. A spoon is the best piece, and the Doctor. <laughs> right. Well, that's because but the Doctor here- has his own spoon, but I have a count- which will be available. <laughs> as, a, as a piece of merchandise. As a piece of merchandising <laughs> with a whole cutlery set. I have a counter theory, though. He already knows the answer then, right? So maybe he really wants to know what a medical foe needs. What is a medical foe? Well, I'm just I saying a medieval foe, we, we know the answer is a spoon. Well, Michael probably knows foe. that. A well, medical a, foe. A real doctor? If you were a doctor who was fighting a real doctor. What would you use? Yeah. Uh, a stethoscope. <laughs> I would strangle him with a stethoscope. Right. There you go. That's See, the qu- I, for some reason, I thought he would go down the windpipe, but you're going to wrap it around the neck. I think it would be more messy. 
Yeah. Getting it down the getting it down the windpipe. All right, but Michael. It would wind, and you could use it like a whip. Yeah. Oh, there we go. <laughs> like that. Okay. All right. So Michael uses stethoscope to kill medical foes. <laughs> Here's something from Chelsea in Forked River, New Jersey. Easy to pronounce. Forked River. Yes. yes. What a great place to live. <laughs> uh, maybe one half of it. <laughs> Chelsea writes, I'm going to have family over for dinner, and half of my family places their napkin on their laps, and the other half of my family places it on the table, which is the right way. Well, why would it be on the table? I mean, let's go back to basics. I mean, obviously... If you give me time, I can run outside and speak to my butler, uh, who will tell me, being as I'm British, I always have a butler or my Batman with me. I think it's on the lap. Why would it be on the table? I know. Maybe it's a little bit, I mean, it's quicker getting it to your face if it's on the table. Are they sloppy eaters? But why don't they have the tucking in to your shirt option? What's wrong? That's right. Has that not come to Fork River yet? Because if you're in a restaurant, putting it on the table means I'm done and you can take my plate. Oh, is that actually a a, a recognized international symbol? Oh, absolutely. It's an SOS to have your plate removed. But I would encourage them to tuck in at the neck. Okay. Um, (laughs) We have a question. This question comes from Bliss in Madison, Alabama. Peter Capaldi. Hi, Bliss. As a Time Lord, yeah. can you comment on the best way to make an entrance if you're late to a party? Well, What's I would never show up late. Oh. oh. I think that's very rude. Mm-hmm. She's asking you as a Time Lord, though. Would a as time a Time, time Lord, show? well, I hate parties. Because what's the point of a party? I mean, the doctor would just say, what a waste of time. Yeah, it Get is. out there and see the stars being born. That's and right. Watch, watch uh, the trash swirl watch around. The big, go to the Big Bang. Go and see that happen. Yeah. Watch this trash swirl around. Um, I think the best way to show up late is apologetically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously, I'd be, I would arrive in the TARDIS, mm-hmm. and that would just be so great and such a... It'd be pretty cause, impressive. Because that's my time machine, and yes. it would just, a, a little gale would blow through the party, and there'd be a swirling noise, be some yeah. music, some dry ice. I, use, I travel with my own dry ice <laughs> yeah. now. People go, wow, yeah. who is this guy? That's we don't right. care if he's late. <laughs> yeah. He's a miracle. Yeah, and also, he right. could say, everybody, come into the TARDIS. I'm going to take you back in time three hours, and we're all going <laughs> to show right. up. We're again. all going to show up on time, and I won't be late. Yeah. That's right. And would... every bad conversation you had, we'll just avoid. Yeah, yeah, perfect. So that's so the I thing. Could... I feel like the TARDIS, you would never be late. You have no right to be late. Uh, well, you can't quite control it. I mean, that's oh. the thing with the yeah, TARDIS. That's true. It malfunctions. Yes, yeah, true. But he occasionally can make it work properly. But I think that's what you do. You say, right. "I'm sorry, I'm late." Let's all come into the TARDIS. Yeah, we'll all come back three hours ago, and we can start the party yeah. again. Maybe yeah. three yes. hours ago, because we can't be sure. Well, we can't, but we also can't run into ourselves. Oh, okay. if we all oh. say, uh, so we'll do it three hours ago in France. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, on another right. planet or something. But if we came back to the same party, we could uh, cause uh, the end of the universe really by running into ourselves. That's like a terrible thing to do at a party. I'm assuming we could go back to Versailles and, and ask questions <laughs> about napkins. They will know. They'll Those know guys will sure. have answers. They'll have a big solution. They'll have a big <laughs> napkin hat. I think they'll have a person sitting on their lap with a napkin. <laughs> <laughs> Just there to wipe your mouth. A lapkin. And catch food. A lapkin. A lapkin. There yeah. we go. There you are. I like there it. There we it go. Is. Uh, There's a lot of options for Bliss, it seems like. Go back to Versailles. That's but, right. But it does involve a TARDIS, so yeah. that's what you need to know. Thanks, Bliss. All right. Uh, we have another question. This one comes from Anonymous. <laughs> oh, wow. Who listed a home zip code of 11111, which doesn't exist, so they really don't want you to know who they are. Okay. I'm a big fan of a certain TV show yeah. mm. and recently gained access to the set via a backstage pass I won at a contest. Okay. I get to see how my favorite show gets made as well as see the actors up close and personal. However, there's no mention of an official meet and greet with the actors. So I was wondering, when would be the proper time to ask them for pictures and autographs? I would also like to respect their private space, especially while they're working... Thanks. I love that. Isn't that respectful? It is. But I, I get a feeling that if you say, don't, a, I don't think come a right and answer. talk to us, they're just going to jump 
security exactly. and like attack you. Yeah, there's a so right answer. Give them a way to meet you is what I'm saying. I right think now. a good time is uh, if you're going to be on the set and they're doing the scene, try and figure out when the scene has ended. Usually okay. they say cut. <laughs> Don't but, run in. Right. Because once it's done, uh, everyone will be a bit more relaxed. If you go in mm. before they start filming the scene, everyone will be a bit tense. Yes. If you go in during the scene, everyone will, you know, Kill well, you. security <laughs> will take you away. Uh, but if you wait until the end of the scene, then everyone will be, oh, thank God, that's over. Right. Let's move on to the next one. Along oh, here's with- a lovely little person from America. Do you want some napkin advice? <laughs> Let me show you this new thing I've got here. It's got a lapkin. Yeah, a la- there you go. <laughs> like my own personal lapkin. Actually, this guy could be your lapkin. <laughs> The anonymous. 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 <laughs> anonymous, reveal yourself, and you too could be Peter could Capaldi's be a lapkin. lapkin. It's a new contest. You've done it, Anonymous. <laughs> Here's the last question from Alex in London, England. Alex says, <laughs> this is an order to us. Yes. Alex orders us to ask him, that would be you, Peter, ask him what to do if someone rubbishes your favorite thing. For instance, quote, Doctor Who is for kids. Well, I would say, you know what, my friend? Yes, it is for kids. <laughs> And it's also for young adults. Mm. And it's also for hipsters. But it's not for jerks. It's not what for... about what about old normal people? Old normal people? Okay. It's for wild, crazy rock and roll people. It's mm. for the dry it's, ice. It's for everyone. No matter how you use your napkin. You take you wipe your glasses and you go up to that guy and you say, Doctor Who, my friend, is for everyone. All right. And right. you're neither smart nor clever. For thinking <laughs> Peter Capaldi, thank you so much for telling our audience, and particularly that gentleman, how to yes. behave. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Peter Capaldi, new episodes of Doctor Who appear Saturdays on BBC America. Also, if you haven't seen The Thick of It, the comedy series in which Capaldi portrays a politico who turns cursing into a kind of poetry. We strongly encourage you to check it out after the kids are in bed. That's right. And as always, if you have a question about how to behave before or after the kids are in bed, we encourage you to send your etiquette queries to us. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. Gentrification is happening in cities all over America, but the most drastic example is arguably in the city of San Francisco. My guest, journalist Alexandra Pelosi, was born and raised in the city by the bay. Her mother, Nancy Pelosi, represents part of the city in Congress. And in her new documentary called San Francisco 2.0, Alexandra examines what's happening in her rapidly changing hometown. Alexandra, put this in context for us. What has changed the Bay Area? Everybody knows about Silicon Valley. That's yep. this place where all the young tech are going because there's this digital gold rush going on where all the jobs in America have gone to the West Coast. Uber, Facebook, Google, Apple, LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. The future of America is coming out of California right now. (laughs) So if you're getting out of college and you want a job, you go to San Francisco. Yeah. San Francisco is a town. It's my hometown. Has a great tradition of being this counterculture capital. There's a lot of great art and music and culture that has come out of San Francisco. And San Francisco has a history of being welcoming to all the, you know, the hippies, gays, anyone who is other has always been welcome in San Francisco. It's it's like the greatest place on earth, right? (laughs) However, it's a little small. It's a little too small. Seven by seven, right? Literally, there is not enough space. So what you have now is you have these newly minted millionaires who are selling their apps and they're buying up all the real estate. So they're pushing out the middle class. And school teachers 
and cops and middle-class families who have lived in San Francisco for generations are now being evicted and pushed Mm -hmm. out into Mm -hmm. the outer boroughs. Mm -hmm. And so there's a little bit of class warfare going on. In the documentary, you explain, usually these companies were in Silicon Valley, but the people they were hiring wanted to live in San Francisco. So they started started busing them. And then a mayor, Ed Lee, was elected, right? And he set up tax incentives for these companies to build in San Francisco, come to San Francisco, and the only part that was available or the easiest part to build in was the Tenderloin, which is this neighborhood you're speaking of, this kind of downtrodden, bohemian neighborhood. Traditionally, mental institutions used to just dump their patients there. Mm. Drug addicts, homeless. It, San Francisco has long enjoyed its reputation of being a mecca for homeless people. We're really good to homeless people. We have mm-hmm. no rules. You can sleep on the sidewalk. Yeah. So... When you have all this tax revenue coming in from all these new tech bros that are moving in, it is revitalizing the city. Mm-hmm. That You can't deny the benefits that mm-hmm. the techies are bringing to mm-hmm. the city because mm-hmm. they're cleaning up this hole mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. a neighborhood, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's good. And unemployment is dropped radically in the past three years, right? From right. 12% to 5% or something like so that. So it's great. However, dot, 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 there's a very dark side to all of this because there really aren't that many grown-ups taking care of everybody else. Mm. You know, you need grown-ups to say, okay, well, we don't have enough affordable housing. Where are we going to put, you know, the people that can't afford this new and improved San Francisco? You keep mentioning that with the tech bro. Talk about, for people who haven't heard that phrase before, what is his habitat? What are his likes and dislikes? What What is tech bro culture? You know, he's sort of in his 20s. He's fresh out of school or just dropped out of school to move to San Francisco to make his fortune. And the challenge with getting a town full of all of those tech bros is that they are using San Francisco as their playground. They've come to San Francisco to make their fortune. I call it their midnight in Paris moment. You know, they're <laughs> yeah. out all night and they yeah. are enjoying the, the yeah. fine city and the tech bro. He has no perspective about the history of the town where he's colonizing. You sound like a townie who's upset that the college kids come in in the fall semester and everything was great until they came. But meanwhile, they're the people that are providing the jobs. And this is totally your... <laughs> on point. Yeah. Exactly. And t- San Francisco is a real small town. So because my uncle was the mayor of Baltimore and my grandfather yeah. was the mayor of Baltimore, when I tried telling my uncle about this, he said, every city would die to have these yeah. problems. Sort of like you're saying to me, you're a townie. There is a yeah. lot of good. Well, and th- a lot of towns in America are dying. So we should be grateful that yeah. they're doing something in California because a lot of our economy is coming, uh, you know, is built around what's happening in California. So it is true that you got to talk about this. It's a little bit like hashtag white people problems. I told my <laughs> best friend in New York about this and he goes, oh, they're tearing down the Banana Republic. But it's not white people problems because most of the people you interview aren't white people, actually. They're Latino and they're African-American and they're the people who are in the neighborhood being pushed out. The white people problem is going to be that there are only white people yeah, left. Right. Um, your family does have long tradition in public service. Your mother is the minority House of Representatives leader. You're, you interview Jerry Brown. You interview Gavin Newsom, like really smart, progressive people who care and want this to stay a diverse place, and yet they haven't succeeded. So what hope do we have? You know what I mean? Like, what hope? Oh, what, uh, really, like, it's not like you just are... You're looking for you, me to give you hope? Well, I'm well, saying I'm you, you sit at the dinner table with people who have power and believe in, in the ability to exact change, and yet... Well, I have faith in politicians. 
Most people don't. Most people hate politicians. These are the people that are going to have to come up with the solutions. But people, humans, your listeners, need to actually participate in this conversation because they need to decide what kind of world they want to live in. I think um, there should be rules. Mm -hmm. And those rules, we need to get the tech companies to follow those rules. San Francisco right now, it's a little bit like the Wild West. Mm. There are no rules. You have Uber and all these car sharing services. You, you want to be a cab driver, you have to get a medallion. Your family fortune, you know, your whole family saves up so you can get a medallion so you're allowed to drive a cab. But Uber has just thrown all the rules to the wind, right? That stuff's going on the ballot in San Francisco. People have to actually say, I think the rules should be... Now, this is just me. Now there are going to be people that are libertarian that say, we don't want any rules and we don't want any taxes. That's fine, too. But then you have to show up and voice your opinion, and then we make the rules. Alexandra Pelosi, her new documentary is called San Francisco 2.0, and it debuts on HBO this Monday at 9 p.m. And Rico, Alexandra told me she stopped by Bill Maher to promote the show. And afterwards, she received over 3,000 emails from all over America. So clearly this issue resonates beyond the Bay. No doubt. And folks, if you want to hear another angle on this story, you should check out an interview Brendan did last year about San Francisco restaurants that serve $4 toast. It's at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And that's the Dinner Party Download for this week, folks. But don't despair. You can find us online 24 hours a day via Instagram or Twitter. Our handle on both is Dinner Party DNLD. This show would not be possible without the help of our producer, Jackson Musker, our associate producer, Nina Potok, and digital associate producer, Christina Lopez. Yes. Jeff Peters and Ravi Carmen provided engineering assistance this week. And a hearty welcome to our new executive producer, Larissa Anderson. Also, we would like to welcome our new listeners on WABE and Atlanta, Georgia. Honored to be entertaining you on your airwaves. As a Pittsburgher, I forgive you for denying us a shot at the World Series in 1992. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to enjoy on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. And you heard Alexandra refer to San Francisco's art and music scene earlier. Well, here's an example. The Mantles are a pop group that call the Bay Area home, for now. They have a new album coming out in a couple of weeks called All Odds End. Here's a track from it called Doorframe. Bon Appetit. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for listening. All right, everybody out.
excuse me. Who are you? I'm Chad. I just bought this building. I'm turning it into a ping pong stadium and quinoa farm. But what about our show? No need. I built an app that makes your show. Oh, really? What's it called? Air DPD. Actually, that's pretty good. Yeah.